You're listening to a message that was recorded live at Roots Community Church in Costa Mesa, California. Roots exists to celebrate the glory of God through lives transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about our community, visit us at rootschurch.net. The Prince of Preachers, Charles Spurgeon, once said, Our main business... Our main business is to win souls. More importantly, our capital P, Prince of Peace, King Jesus himself, when calling some fishermen to be his disciples, said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. As followers of Christ in 2021, we are all products of people taking evangelism seriously. Whether in a sermon, on the street, in a Christian home, a conversation with a friend, however you heard the gospel, this message was not foolishness to you, but rather the power of God for salvation. But evangelism for most of us, including myself, if we're honest, is an area we know we could grow in. When Alec called me and asked if I would take on this topic, after accepting the task, I hung up the phone like, who is sufficient for these things? Nevertheless, here I am with the topic of evangelism, but not simply evangelism, rather the supremacy of Christ and evangelism. When was the last time you proclaimed the gospel to a non-believer? Do you even think it's your job as a Christian to evangelize? One study done by Alpha USA in 2019 shows that almost 50%, 47% of millennial Christians think evangelism is wrong. In our age of tolerance, coexisting, subjective truth, who do we think we are telling people what they must do to be saved? You do you, I'll do me. Good, right? Now, my goal this morning is not to twist your arm into forcing you to promise me that you'll evangelize 10 people by 2022 or to make you sign up for a local apologetics class so you can feel equipped to defend the faith. And I'm definitely not here to make you feel guilty that you haven't been telling people about Jesus. My goal this morning is for you to see who you are in 1 Peter verses 9 and 10. And as you see who you are from this passage and realize who you are in re- and, 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 and realize your place in redemptive history, that you would be who you are. Namely, proclaimers of the excellencies of Christ. Before we get into our text this morning in First Peter, I know someone is thinking, but Rick, the supremacy of Christ and evangelism, aren't these two different topics? I'm glad you asked. Trinitarian scholar Robert Lethem says this. God's ultimate purpose for the universe. It's a pretty big way to start a sentence, so let me read it again. God's ultimate purpose for the universe is that Christ be the head. The one in supreme authority over the redeemed and renewed cosmos. I believe this is true. 
And if it is, God's ultimate purpose for the universe is the supremacy of Christ. The supreme treasuring of Jesus. The white hot worship of Christ over all things redeemed. This is the ultimate purpose for the universe. You may agree with that sentence and still say, yeah, but what does that have to do with evangelism? And I'd say everything. That has everything to do with evangelism. Are all things already redeemed? Yes, the work of redemption on the cross is past tense. Jesus died and does not have to die again. Praise God. It is finished, he said. But do all of those for whom Christ died know him? Or in the words of Jesus, could there be other sheep, not of this fold, that we must go get? Redemption has been accomplished 2,000 years ago on a Roman cross in Jerusalem, but it has not been fully. There, there are people, people in your family, among your coworkers and friends, at your coffee shops, among your Uber drivers and classmates, that he has purchased with his blood. But how can they believe in the one whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them, Paul says? This is where evangelism comes in the picture. Evangelism exists as a means to God's ultimate purpose for the universe, that Christ be the head, the one in supreme authority over the redeemed and renewed cosmos. Or to break it down even more, evangelism exists, if I may replace a word in a famous John Piper quote on missions, evangelism exists because worship doesn't. Evangelism is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Worship is ultimate, not evangelism, because God is ultimate, not man. When this age is over and the countless millions of the redeemed fall on their faces before the throne of God, evangelism will be no more. It is a temporary necessity, but worship abides forever. Worship, therefore, is the fuel and goal of evangelism. It's the goal of evangelism because in evangelism, we simply aim to bring people into the white-hot enjoyment of God's glory. The goal of evangelism is the gladness of the peoples in the greatness of God. So yes, to answer your question, the supremacy of Christ and evangelism go hand in hand. If you would open up your Bibles to 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 2, would we stand again for the reading of God's word? 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is the word of God. 
You may be seated. My outline for this passage um, is twofold. First, who. Second, what. Pretty simple. Who. Who we are. Our identity. And what. What we are called to do. Our purpose. But as we look into the what. What we are called to do. Our purpose. We will ask four more questions. When, where, why, and how. So first, who. Who are you? That's a basic question, but goes to the heart of one's identity. Identity is what Peter is after in these verses as he's addressing these elect exiles scattered across Asia Minor. This book is written to resident aliens. Their allegiance to Jesus, Jesus was costly. Peter needs them to understand their identity so they can live out of it. Look at verse 9. But you. Peter's speaking contrary to the people he just mentioned in verses 7 and 8. You can scan verses 7 and 8. But these people are those who rejected Christ, who disobey the word, who stumble, who walk in darkness. In verse 9, Peter is saying, not y'all. He's talking to a group of people that according to one chapter earlier, by God's mercy, have been born again to a living hope. These are gospel people. Followers of Jesus in a hostile world. We don't have too much time today for 1 Peter context, but I do want you to know that what Peter is about to say in these two verses to Christians 2,000 years ago in Asia Minor is true of any Christ follower today. The bridge from their city to ours isn't too far. So let's lean in to hear from Peter who we are in Christ. Verse 9. But you, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Let's stop there. You can do a word study on all these metaphors that Peter ascribes to Christians and find out some wonderful things about who we are in Christ. I highly recommend it. But we can also get so caught up in word studies that we actually miss Peter's point. What Peter is doing in this entire passage is actually quite remarkable. He's ascribing to the church... Christians, Jews, and Gentiles in this letter, what was once promised to Israel, ethnic Jews, the old covenant people of God. So hold your spot in First Peter, we'll be back, but turn with me to Exodus, Exodus 19, second book of the Bible after Genesis, Exodus. In Exodus 19, God's chosen people, the Jews, had just crossed the Red Sea, and now they're no longer living in slavery in Egypt. Now here they were at Mount Sinai, and God, through Moses, was making a covenant with this people. Here's what he said, Exodus 19, verse 4. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Verse 5, now therefore, if, if 
you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant. You shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. A couple things to notice. First, the if clause. If you obey my voice and keep covenant. Second, look at what he calls Israel if they kept covenant. They would be his treasured possession. Kingdom of priests, holy nation. Sound familiar? Isaiah 43, 20 in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, Israel's called a chosen race. Exact same phrase that Peter picks up on in our passage. So turn back to 1 Peter. When Peter says to these Christians and to us that we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Is he just using old terms in new ways? Or on the contrary, is he simply doing replacement theology? Wherever he sees Israel in the old covenant, he can just replace them with the church and call it a day? Or is there more going on? I think there is. Look at verse 10. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 10. Once you were not a people, now, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Now, verse 10, without any Old Testament context at all, is obviously still a true statement for all Christians, especially us Gentiles. We were dead. Now we're alive. We weren't God's people. Now we are. We hadn't received mercy. Now we have. Or like Drake said, we started from the bottom. Now we're here. But is this what Peter is actually saying? Let's turn to another Old Testament book. This time, the book of Hosea. Hosea. If you know Hosea, God uses this prophet to show Israel their adultery as God's bride. In doing so, Hosea plays the part of God and marries an adulterous wife named Gomer, who represents Israel. If you know the Old Testament, you know that Israel never lived up to that if clause from Exodus 19. They were God's unfaithful bride. So after the prophet Hosea marries this unfaithful bride, Gomer, she starts burying him children. Take a look at what God commands Hosea to name his kids. Hosea chapter 1 verse 6. She conceived again and bore a daughter. And the Lord said to him, call her name no mercy. For I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. Jump to verse 8. When she had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said, call his name not my people. For you are not my people, and I am not your God. And Holly thought Providence would have been a crazy name for our firstborn. God has a strong message for Israel. This covenant community, God's people, Israel, who had received mercy and the promises of God, are no longer God's people. They no longer receive mercy. What a strong indictment. But God, 
one chapter later, gives his adulterous wife Israel a promise. A promise that Peter, interestingly enough, picks up on in our text. Open up to Hosea 2, or turn one chapter to Hosea 2, verse 23. And I will have mercy on no mercy. And I will say to not my people, you are my people. And he shall say, you are my God. How in the world can Peter cite a passage that promises Israel's restoration and apply it to his Jewish and Gentile audience, the church? This reminds me of when the author of Hebrews uses Jeremiah 31 and the promised new covenant with Israel and Judah to tell the church that because of Jesus, Jeremiah's promised new covenant is their reality, Jew and Gentile. Can these New Testament authors do this and still be faithful to the Jewish text, God's word? Obviously they can. The same Holy Spirit is the author for all of scripture. And as God's purposes continue to unfold, his revelation also progresses. Think of an hourglass as an entire canon. I brought a couple props with me today. That's how we roll in Colorado. Can we all see that? I'll just hold it up. It's my hourglass. Boom. The Bible from Genesis to Revelation is an hourglass. The whole Old Testament is the top half of our hourglass and funnels down to Christ. The Old Testament people, institutions, historical events, promises, all point to him. He's the climax. The middle of our hourglass is Jesus. Jesus is the center. And so the entire New Testament, the bottom portion of our hourglass opens up and expands from Christ. This is how New Testament authors like Peter can and do give interpretation to previously hidden shadows, types, and promises. The Apostle Paul says it like this in 2 Corinthians 1.20, all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. The if clause of Exodus 19, for instance, may have never been kept by ethnic Israel, but it was kept by Christ. All the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. We live in an amazing era of redemptive history. One New Testament scholar, Karen Job, says this, Consistent with his view that the Old Testament prophets served Christians, Peter continues to draw heavily on the Old Testament. Though heavily indebted to the scriptures and interpretive traditions of Judaism, Peter nevertheless creatively transposes them in light of the new reality inaugurated by Christ. I love that, the new reality inaugurated by Christ. Jesus is the climax. He's the fulfillment of the entire Old Testament. So going back to our hourglass illustration, as things funnel down 
and come out the other side, they have to go through who? Jesus, right? He's the center, the climax of redemptive history. And this means that on the other side, the bottom half of our hourglass, the New Testament, the New Covenant, some things change. Some things are abolished. Some things remain. But either way, they have to go through Christ. The promises given to Israel were fulfilled by Jesus. He's the telos. And so now all of us in Christ, Jew and Gentile, receive the fulfillment of these promises because of our union with him. This is why we cannot replace from old to new too quickly without seeing what Christ, our hermeneutical key, unlocks. It's also why we just can't take promises in the Old Testament and say they mean nothing to us because the church is not Israel. What does the Bible mean in light of the new reality inaugurated by Christ? This is what New Testament authors like Peter are doing. So back to our passage, what is Peter doing? Tom Schreiner in his uh, first Peter commentary says it much better than I can when he says the church does not replace Israel, but it does fulfill the promises made to Israel. And all those Jews and Gentiles who belong to the restored Israel are part of the new people of God. So Roots Community Church, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, you are the new people of God. Chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own possession Once not a people, now God's people. Once not received mercy, now you've received mercy. Peter wants the church to know who we are so that we can be who we are, which takes us to our second point, what? What? In light of who we are as the new people of God, what are we called to do? Look down again at verse 9, but you're a chosen race, royal priesthood, holy nation, a people for his own possession, our identity, right? And what's our calling? Let's keep reading. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. What are we called to do as the new people of God? Proclaim the excellencies of him who called us. Peter, again, is picking up on Old Testament promises. In Isaiah 42, Isaiah is prophesying about the coming Savior, God's chosen servant. Living on this side of the cross, we know this to be Jesus. The servant songs are all about Jesus. But Isaiah is telling Israel that when this suffering servant comes, there will be a new song. And in verse 16 of Isaiah 42, which will be up on the screen, he says... And I will lead the blind in a way they do not know. In paths they have not known, I will guide them. I will turn the darkness before them into light. The rough places into level ground. The next chapter, Isaiah says in verse 20 and 21 of chapter 43. For I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, to give drink to my chosen people. The people whom I formed for myself. That they might declare my praise. Roots, 
Community Church, you are the people that Jesus has formed for himself. And he has done this so that you might sing a new song, declaring his praise. This is at the heart of evangelism, declaring his praise. Or like our passage says, proclaiming the excellencies of Jesus. As God's new covenant people, this is our purpose. We can't help but to speak on his behalf about him. We proclaim the glory of God. We talk about Jesus. We tell people what Jesus has done for us. Evangelism is proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. Before we more quickly move through our when, where, why, how of evangelism, there's one more thing I want to mention that is related to our calling as proclaimers of Jesus. It's more of a big picture, zoom out, as we see what's happening as we evangelize. Like we've already talked about, evangelism exists because worship doesn't. Well, in the Old Testament, where did they worship? Anybody? Yeah, I think I heard the temple. First, the, the garden temple Eden. Then the tabernacle. Then the temple in Jerusalem. Israel evangelized, so to speak, in a come and see type of way. Israel was strategically located. All these trade routes in the ancient Near East had to go through Israel. And what was in Israel? Yahweh. God. The presence of God dwelt in the temple of God. And as outsiders saw the people of God, it had the potential to draw them to the person of God. Into a relationship, a covenant with God. If we zoom out just a bit and get a little more context for our passage this morning, we will, we will uh, notice something rather astonishing. First Peter 2, but let's start right above our text, verse 4. As you come to him, a living stone, speaking of Jesus, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. Once Jesus said, destroy this temple, I will rebuild it in three days. Well, that happened, right? Think back to our hourglass. Jesus is what even the old covenant temple pointed to. And as this living stone tabernacled among us and was killed for us, Resurrected from the dead, Jesus, this living stone, became the cornerstone of the new temple of God, the church. So when Peter says, you yourselves like living stones are being built up, or when Paul says, you are the temple of God because the spirit of God lives in you, what is happening is God's temple, his church, his presence is spreading to the end of the earth. Christianity isn't a come and see religion, it's a go and tell. As the gospel is proclaimed and the people of God multiply, God's temple expands. Until one day, Revelation 21 and 22 happen. And the new heavens and new earth 
is a bride city garden temple where Jesus is supreme and we reign with him forever. I believe this temple motif that Peter picks up on has the potential to be fuel for evangelism. See yourself involved in God's big picture of redemptive history. Listen to what G.K. Beale said on from Genesis to Revelation. Quote, this picture in Revelation 22 fulfills the mission given in Genesis 1 and 2. And the progress of this mission can be traced throughout the entire Bible. In Genesis 1 and 2, Eden is the dwelling place of God. And God commissions Adam and Eve to expand the boundaries of that dwelling place to fill the earth. While God's original call seemed to be thwarted by sin in Genesis 3, God continues to establish his dwelling place among the patriarchs. Until the construction of the tabernacle and temple, after the destruction of Solomon's temple, the prophets anticipate the coming of a new and expanding temple. And these prophecies begin to be fulfilled in Jesus and the church. The church, as the dwelling place of God, must expand until one day it fills the entire heaven and earth. The entire cosmos becomes the dwelling place of God. It's through evangelism, proclaiming the excellencies of him who called us, that we get to play an active role in expanding Eden until the new heavens and new earth are here. And Eden is fully restored as the dwelling place of God. So four questions as it pertains to evangelism. When, where, why, and how. First, when? When do we evangelize? This one's easy, right? Now, yeah. <laughs> now. We evangelize now because our resurrected Lord told the church that all authority has been given to me. Therefore, go make disciples. This is our call. We make disciples and we do this now and until we take our final breath. Our head coach, Jesus, has given his team the church orders. We must be about a lot of good things for the kingdom. The gospel has implications. That's another sermon for another day. But for today, when Jesus tells his church that all authority in heaven and earth are mine, and then says, therefore, go. Go make disciples. This is not an optional ministry for the Christians. For the Christian. This is not simply for those who are really zealous. This is our command as the church. If God sits down to order a steak, let's not bring him a veggie burger. Go make disciples. Our master's order could not be any clearer. This is our job. Let's proclaim the excellencies of Jesus and let's do it now. Second, where? Where do we evangelize? Another easy one, right? Wherever we are. A simple answer, but isn't it so easy to compartmentalize the Christian life? I know it is for me. 
Our text this morning from 1 Peter doesn't compartmentalize anything. Consecration, complete devotion is at the core of what it means to be God's people. As God's people, we are his own possession. Like our passage says, we belong to him. We are possessed by God. Wherever we find ourselves, we are not our own. We belong to him on mission to declare his praise. Evangelism is not a check box we get to mark off once a year. It's our calling. We are proclaimers of the excellencies of Christ. Third, why? Why do we evangelize? The mission statement at Roots, like many of you guys know well, is this. You exist to celebrate the glory of God through lives transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's why we evangelize. Jesus is supreme. We know this. This whole series is about the supremacy of Christ. And yet, guess what? His name is not famous amongst most in Costa Mesa. According to the book, The Rise of the Nuns, the fastest growing religious group in America are the nuns. N-O-N-E-S, the nuns. No religious affiliation. But here's the thing, there's not one person in Costa Mesa breathing right now except that Jesus is giving them breath to breathe. Like Kuiper said, there's not a square inch of the universe, Costa Mesa included, that Jesus not, does not cry out, mine. Jesus is supreme, and yet many in this city do not know it. They don't treasure him as supreme. This is why we evangelize, for the fame of his name. To make Jesus famous in Costa Mesa and to the ends of the earth. We must advance the supremacy of Christ through evangelism. And as this happens, you get to fulfill your mission as a church. Celebrate the glory of God through lives transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why else do we evangelize? Because we believe in the reality of hell. Listen carefully to what John Bunyan, author of Pilgrim's Progress, said here. The loss of a soul is the highest, the greatest loss. A loss that can never be repaired or made up. What shall a man give in exchange for his soul? What would he not give? What would he not part with at that day? The day in which he shall see himself damned if he had it in exchange for his soul. We evangelize because the reality of hell. I got another prop. This one Alec got for me. It's a little statue. Tiny one, a replica one. Some of you guys know who this is, right? It's the thinker, or what some call the thinking man. 
Right, Holly and I were at an art museum in New York, and I'll never forget seeing the real one in person. I was mesmerized by how intense this man was. Eyes closed, fist to his face, so serious in deep contemplation. I had no clue what it depicted until I read the description. The thinking man or the thinker is a man contemplating all those who are damned for all eternity. He's sitting at the gates of hell. Roots, community, church, our family members, co-workers, neighbors, friends, apart from Christ, are headed to a place that we cannot even conceive of. If they don't know Jesus as Lord, they are going to spend eternity forever in the lake of fire, tasting the wrath of God for their sin against him. Torment unending, and it doesn't take an out-of-body experience. If you take the Bible seriously to see that hell is for real. And there you are, ordained by God to be in their life. Will you be silent, even though you know where they are headed? Or will you proclaim the excellencies of Christ and tell them the greatest news ever? That Jesus died for sinners. How much do you have to hate someone? to not proselytize. How much do you have to hate somebody not to proselytize? That's a quote from an atheist, Penn, of the magician duo Penn and Teller. Here's what he said. Keep in mind, this is an atheist. I've always said that I don't respect people who don't proselytize. I don't respect that at all. If you believe that there's a heaven and a hell and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life and you think that it's not really worth telling them because it would make it socially awkward, how much do you have to hate somebody to not proselytize? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe that everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? I mean, if I believed beyond the shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe that truck was bearing down on you, there's a certain point where I tackle you. And this is more important than that. Why do we evangelize? Because Christ is supreme and hell is not a metaphor. Finally, how? How do we evangelize? This will be our application. How? There are so many different methods and approaches to evangelism. My goal this morning during our application is not to give you what I think is the best method of evangelism, but rather to give you some practical wisdom for evangelism, some practical advice that I've, I've learned over the years, have seen in scripture, have read in books, and have tried in my own life. So I got 10 things 
Obviously, there are many, many, many more than that, but I got 10. My hope is that some of these will be helpful as you seek to expand Eden, God's temple, his presence, his church, his supremacy in Costa Mesa. So how do we evangelize first? Worship. Worship. Like we've said, evangelism exists because worship doesn't. This is why we evangelize. But it's also how we evangelize. We evangelize because we worship. If we ourselves are not consumed with God, we're not going to want to tell anyone else about him. But when Jesus is your portion, evangelism becomes a delight instead of a burdensome task. If worshiping Jesus is the supreme goal of your life, well then telling others about him won't be like going to a dentist appointment. Everyone is a worshiper and worshipers can't help but to talk, speak about their loves. What do you find yourself talking about the most? What are you most passionate about? that you can't help to tell others about. This may just be what you worship. Missionary Elliot Clark says, it's obvious our gospel silence isn't because our mouths are broken. It's because our hearts are. Because if we worship God as we should, our neighbors, coworkers, and friends would be the first to hear about it. Seek intimacy with God. This is what we were created for, worship And as you do, there will be in your heart, in the words of the prophet Jeremiah, a burning fire shut up in your bones and you cannot hold it in. Worshippers worship. They can't help but to proclaim the excellencies of Christ. Number two, how do we worship? Number two, how do we, sorry, how do we evangelize? Number two, be around non-believers. We just got to look to Jesus on this one. Jesus hung out with sinners. Many Christians only hang out with Christians. Obviously, don't neglect gathering with the household of God. Christian community is not optional. You guys know that. But you can't evangelize if you have zero non-believers in your world. I I love the, the quote that Alec actually sketched into the bottom of the statue. It's from a missionary. If I have the right angle, I could read it. Some want, some want to live within the sound of church and chapel bells. I want to run a rescue shop within a yard of hell. We need to find ourselves around those who need what we have. Third, holy lives. Holy lives. If you go read 1 Peter in its entirety, you'll see proclamation being essential to who we are. But another essential to, so a proclamation being essential to what we do. But holiness being another thing essential to who we are. Peter in chapter 1 says, be holy for I am holy. In his intro, he addresses them as elect exiles according to God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ. And even when he's giving advice to Christian wives with their unbelieving husbands in 1 Peter 3, he tells them that their husbands may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. 
Evangelism is obviously verbal proclamation. But if your life doesn't show the world that you're a product of the gospel, are you? You'll find out if you start evangelizing a reason that many say they reject Christ because of Christians. People will tell you that Christians are hypocrites. But before you give them the the best apologetics you learned online for that response, don't forget what first Peter, don't forget what Peter says in the most famous apologetic verse we have. 1 Peter 1, 3, 15 says, always being prepared to make a defense, wait for it, to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Peter is not as impressed with our understanding of the cosmological argument that we are. When was the last time somebody asked you to give them a reason for the hope you have? Peter is saying to us, be who you are, God's holy nation. The last phrase of 1 Peter 3.15, the famous apologetic verse, brings us to our fourth application. Our fourth point, after telling them to make a defense, he says, yet do it with gentleness and respect. So number four, be gentle and respectful. We must be gentle. Jesus embodied truth and love. We need to listen well. We need to respect people created in God's image, even if their worldview is nothing like ours. You know the saying, the people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. Ten years ago, I, was in, I went to West Hollywood with a friend of mine. He brought, he brought a huge speaker and a microphone. And, and he did most of the talking. And I don't even know if I'd call it talking. It was more like angry preaching at nobody. Nobody was stopping to hear my friend yell at them about their sin. I jumped on the mic and did what the best evangelists in that situation in West, West Hollywood would do. I read Romans 1. I may have thought we evangelized that night. We didn't. Gentleness and respect. We must realize we are speaking to fellow image bearers. Listen to the Apostle Paul's heart for unbelievers in his world. In Romans 9, he says, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen. Great sorrow and unceasing anguish produces compassion and costly love. We must speak the truth, but we must do it. In love. Number five, how do we evangelize? Fear. Fear. I don't care what method you use, going from a natural conversation to a spiritual one takes a little courage. It can be awkward for that split second. In 1 Peter 1.17, he tells his readers and us to conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. The reason we need fear is because we will always please the one we fear most. Will it be our coworkers' opinion of us, our family's rejection of us, 
or will it be the Lord God Almighty? Number six, ask good questions. When Holly was in seminary, she took an evangelism class that taught her to put little pebbles in people's shoes. Ask good questions, questions they can't shake, things they'll be thinking about later on in the day. I heard of one seminary president who loves to ask people, what are you living for? And after they give the answer, ask them, how's that working out? Ask good questions. Number seven, pray. When we pray, we confess our dependence on God. We need help. We need boldness. We need power. We need opportunities. We need clarity of mind. Love, compassion, the list is endless. And Jesus tells us in the Gospels to ask anything in my name. Evangelism gives us an opportunity to ask God for help in the name of Christ. Number eight, confidence. Confidence. I know for many, evangelism evokes pressure. What if I mess up? What if I can't answer their questions? I don't want to blow it. I'd rather just... Ask them if they want to come to church and leave it to the professionals. Now I'm all about bringing our lost and family members to church. But we can't forget, we are the church. And by the grace of God, your church leaders are equipping you for the work of ministry. That's our call. So why confidence? It's certainly not confidence in ourselves. It's confidence in the fact that we can't reason anybody to Christ with sound arguments and the best Christian apologetics. We're confident because there's no pressure on us. I mean, think about Judas. Three years with Christ himself. And what does he say at the end? Nah, he ain't the one. Dude spent three years with God in the flesh, and it wasn't enough. So don't think this all depends on you and your persuasiveness. You actually can't convert anyone. You're not the Holy Spirit. But you have a message. Your message is the gospel, and God's sheep hear God's voice. They hear his voice through the excellence of him proclaimed by your mouth. What a privilege it is to participate in advancing his kingdom. Oh, what confidence we have in our God who saves. Number nine, how do we evangelize? Number nine, get to the gospel. Your testimony is probably awesome. And I would love to hear it after church, but... It's not evangelism because it's not the gospel. Apologetics is great and a tool that God will often use alongside evangelism. But it's not evangelism because it's not the gospel. Evangelism is proclaiming the gospel, the good news, the evangel. We must get to the gospel, the life, death, and resurrection of the Son of God, Jesus Christ, with a call to respond in repentance and faith. Maybe you're in here this morning and you're not a follower of Christ. You might think this sermon is pointless to you because you have no desire to tell anyone about Jesus. 
I totally understand. But this sermon is for you. You need this good news. This evangel, when Adam and Eve got kicked out of the garden temple Eden. Sin was brought into the world because of what happened in Eden. And so we're all born into sin. You're not a sinner because you sin. You sin because you are a sinner. And the penalty of our sin is death. This is awful news. But the good news is that with his life's blood, Jesus paid the ransom for sinners like you and me. The son of God became a man, lived a sinless life, and died a brutal death on a cross for our sin. He tasted God's wrath so we don't have to. But he didn't stay dead. He rose from the dead and on the third day, he defeated death and now sits enthroned in heaven. So that those who come to him can be given life everlasting. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Repent of your sin and turn to God. Place your faith, your trust, your hope, your allegiance in Christ alone. And last, number 10, in my practical application for evangelism, number 10, just do it. Whatever you think about Nike, they got this one right. Just do it. I will tell you now that you will come up with a million excuses to not proclaim him some of you will be fired up this afternoon about evangelism and you'll forget about it in a month sadly i know that by experience creating new rhythms and habits are not easy i always have reasons cross my mind not to share my faith but i have never once regretted talking to somebody about eternal matters just do it and what's crazy is you may just find that you really enjoy it. This is what you were created for, to proclaim the excellencies of Christ. As we close, listen to these words from Christian counselor Eric Johnson. Dr. Johnson says, Most of us seem far more concerned with our lives on earth than focused on God. Families, Jobs, homes, and entertainment consume far more of most Christians' attention and energy today. All the while, Christ says, seek first my kingdom. So, Roots Community Church, the new people of God, God's chosen race, holy nation, royal priesthood, a people for his own possession. Once you guys were not a people, now you are God's people. Once you hadn't received mercy, now you have received mercy. That we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Let's be who we are, proclaimers of the gospel of Jesus Christ.